Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Did you fall down? And my ear fell out. Oh, I thought your life alert bracelet was just activated. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so your turn. (laughs) Okay, three, two, one. Welcome to Two Designers Walk Into a Bar. A place where pop culture creatives discover design icons that make us tick. And we share a few cocktails in the process. Yep. Today, we close out with part two of our best of last season. It's a time to give one last toast to some of our favorite bits as we move on to season two. So grab a vintage vino, join us, and some favorite memories as we journey back into the bar. Well, so um, we're going to be talking uh, about the second part of our season where we had some kind of funny eclectic topics. And um, one that we had a lot of fun with was episode seven, which we called First Impressions. And (laughs) we kind of, we both have a love of uh, uh, of display typefaces, and we referred to them as our ugly dates. Um, and I think, you know, it was probably a toss-up as to who had the best one. But I will say, you did tie it together with some good... You, you did tie your typeface together with some good uh, Southern humor. True, which, you know, if there's ever a moment to inject some Southern humor into anything, you know I'm game to do that. All right, let's take a listen. So we're going to kind of get into a little bit of a battle here because I would argue that... Do do you want me to tip my hand? Do you want me to uh, introduce... My my ugly date for the evening. Yeah, so it sounds like we're we're gonna we're trying to decide whose guest is more maligned. <laughs> yes. <laughs> who who clears the room faster when they who show up? Who brought the stinkiest guest to the party? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yes, go for it. All right, I'm gonna toss my hat in the ring here. Um, so my uh, typeface is a. <laughs> I won't say near and dear to my heart (laughs) typeface, (laughs) but it's one that is of my childhood. You know what, Todd? I feel to reveal the typeface. I almost want to tell you what the show is that I first encountered it in. Because knowing you, knowing your pedigree, I think you will nail this as soon as i give you the title oh of the show. no okay all right come on man no. all I right mean, uh, that uh, much of a southerner well are you ready 
Yeah, okay, go ahead. Dukes of Hazard. Yeah, I know what it is. It's hobo typeface. <laughs> yes, okay, all right, yeah, you got me. All right, good, good, good. Yep, right. yep. If, if, the, right, if so the designer wasn't going to get it, the hillbilly would. So, Todd, as uh, the listeners all now know, uh, my introduction to Southern culture uh, came from the Dukes of Hazard and Hee Haw. I don't want to downplay Hee Haw, but Hee Haw was not part of our <laughs> our typeface conversation. At least this go round. I bet you thought they were the same type. Yeah, same yeah I thought TV it was show, actually. A, yeah, I thought that the the musical review during the Dukes of Hazard was in fact Hee Haw. Turns out it they really were two separate be. shows. Yeah, they should, <laughs> <laughs> with with a little bit of pro wrestling thrown in there. I think. <laughs> Well, so we all sort of love, hate, hobo, and it has certainly been around for a long time. And, you know, it, it really showed off with the Dukes of Hazard. But I was sort of really captivated by finding out how it got its name. You did a lot of research on that one, didn't you? Yeah, that was a little bit crazy. It involves happenstance, the Russian language, and just maybe a little bit of uh, plagiarism. So let's give it a listen. So, the first theory is that it came from a story that it was sketched in the early 1900s, sent to the foundry nameless, like it just kind of, you know, hey, would you be interested in me creating this face for you? And it just hung around. No one was an advocate for it within the type foundry, just sort of lingered. And it was called that old hobo. <laughs> you know, it was this this old kind of half-baked design that was always hanging around, kind of this albatross, right? So it was the hobo. It was the itinerant fellow, the gentleman of the road who would not go away. <laughs> then, <laughs> uh, you know, another idea, the typeface originally was not even called hobo. It was originally called adface believe it or not, which doesn't really roll off the tongue and doesn't sound nearly as fun as you can mm -hmm. imagine that mm -hmm. this hobo does. So it was finally patented in 1915. I mentioned there was a second version of the typeface called Light Hobo. So that's the hobo that um, doesn't get... has got his to... shit together. Right? Yeah, well, I, I would say he probably shits more often than his more heavy set friend, you know, if he's the light hobo. So, um, you know, he got a, he got a hold of a bag of Olestra chips or, you know, something. I'm not sure That's exactly. That's a separate story, my friend. Yeah, yeah, up. I'm sorry. I, my new nickname for you, Todd, is light hobo. Oh, okay, thanks. So, you know, Elliot, you talked about the irony of the Dukes of Hazard being a show set in the Deep South, shot in Southern California. What about our movie logos episode that included location as part of the story? Like the one I was trying to get you to guess. Okay, it takes place in Hollywood. Wait, in Hollywood. Hold on, hold on. I might be zeroing in on this. I okay. think you and I saw this movie together, actually. <laughs> we may. I really okay. do. Okay, so was Howard Hughes in this movie at all? Like a um, Howard Hughes character? Not not the corpse of Howard Hughes, no, because he was gone by then, but a character, yeah. So, so yeah, so, so you're saying it wasn't Weekend at Bernie's? No, it wasn't Weekend at Bernie's, no. Uh, <laughs> okay. And I, I, I'm not crazy about that logo in particular. <laughs> a classic movie in its own right, nonetheless. That's right, that's right. Well, let's see. So Art Deco, set in the 30s, Nazis... In Hollywood. Oh, in Hollywood. That's right. That's right. Okay. Well, this, and, and it's Disney. And it's yeah. okay. 
I think it, was it any you said it was based on a comic book, right? Because as superhero so it was like wasn't a superhero Disney yep. invented it existed prior to that. Right, based on a comic book. Mm. Mhm. Okay, I'll just tell you. Okay. The Rocketeer. Oh. Do you remember the movie? I love The Rocketeer. I love I it. I love this movie. Yes. Yeah. I love this movie. So, uh I dug into a little bit of the history of uh, the the marketing of it, the logo, which I love, is just just reeks of Art Deco cleanliness, uh, and the poster design. And then, you know, I, I went back and really dug into the movie itself and uh, found out some interesting bits about it. So yeah, Todd, we were really surprised at how poorly this movie did at the box office. Yeah, we both loved it, and you know, neither of us are really. Um, cinema aficionados but i do have to say i loved hearing you use the word homage you know what that's the word that allowed me to pass the sat (laughs) all right let's hear more about that (laughs) but as you said like the movie had timothy dalton in it had a couple other stars in it so they actually redid the poster later to see if that would draw a little bit more uh, attention to put the characters in there. That particular poster just falls apart. But anywho, that's (laughs) part of it. And as I said in the opening part, the marketing was so good and the film flopped so much, a review in the New York Times that actually the film didn't fulfill the promise of the marketing material. You know, the other thing I wonder is when you're talking about Terminator 2, versus the Rocketeer, you sort of have this idea of, if you're like a high school kid, say, do you want to see a movie about future-based technology that's awesome and on the cutting edge, to your point, the liquid Terminator, Mm -hmm, made mm -hmm. from like mercury or chrome or whatever, or do you want to see this throwback homage to 50 years ago during an era that as far as you were concerned as like a a high school kid, which I was at the time, couldn't have been like more uncool, right? That was when your grandparents were alive. Those were the good old days, right? (laughs) So, and there's even another little, yeah, supposedly, um, there's even another wrinkle that might be one of the biggest wrinkles that led to people, not many people seeing The Rocketeer. The original comic book, the Dave Stevens comic book, as I said, was kind of a, an homage to Betty Page and pinup girls. Oh, yeah. Well, when Disney decided that it was going to be released under the Disney brand and not Touchstone brand, there goes all that stuff. Right. So the thing that made the comic book popular was gone. The director, whose name is Joe Johnston, fought Disney tooth and nail to keep all of this stuff, this magic that was in the comic book, and they said, nope, 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 nope. Again, love the movie, but you end up with this kind of sweet, uh, almost milk toast picture of a sweet time. Um, but it was not really the taste of the time. And that, I thought, is what made it really cool and it stood out. Okay, so I made it pretty clear. I love The Rocketeer. I loved everything about it. It deserved to do better. Um, but as much as I love The Rocketeer, Elliot... You really showed me up. You loved your movie even more, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Let's give it a listen. 
I'm sure everyone knows what Ghostbusters is. I'm not talking about the compromised 1989 Ghostbusters 2 sequel. I'm not talking about the 2016 reboot. I'm not talking about the 2020, now 2021, Paul Rudd vehicle that will at some point come out. I You're am talking about the OG Ghostbusters. Yes, the 1984. I was 11 years old, but managed to get people to take me to the movie theater three different times that summer to see it, Ghostbusters. Wow. I loved Ghostbusters. Loved it, yeah, loved yeah. it. Loved, I still love it today. Actually, <laughs> I love it so much, I, uh, I bought the DVD twice, forgetting I already owned it. <laughs> <laughs> you got so excited the second time. I did. So maybe if you're nice to me, I'll mail one to you. Ooh. Todd, I love that the movie logo was firmly implanted in the movie and it was also of course the company logo for ghostbusters itself an icon inside of an icon um you know and and this reminds me of another childhood story that i think you really got a kick out of listening to oh oh yeah 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 uh when you were talking about something your family was very passionate about okay yeah let's hear about that I want to talk about the poster real quick, and then I want to get into the, you know, the logo and a little bit about the movie itself. Because this is one of the cool things where it's very meta in the sense that the logo appears several times in the movie, right? Like, mm-hmm, like the mm-hmm. Ghostbusters. It's the logo for the movie, but it's also the logo for the business. <laughs> yeah, marketing genius. But but marketing it was it didn't genius. feel forced. You know what I mean? No, it was it, it, it had a place in the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally worked. So it was a marketing vehicle, but it was also a prop. A little bit of background on the movie. So I think probably the reason why the poster was so simple, it like I said earlier, it was simply black background, red and white logo. The logo is, of course, a circle with a slash through it and a cartoon ghost kind of with both his hands and his head looking in one direction and kind of protruding out of it, right? So he's mm-hmm. scared. The slash is going from, if you think of a clock face, two o'clock to eight o'clock. And it's just brilliantly simple. And I remember this was in the days you didn't really buy video cassettes. Start to rent them in the mid 80s. I know this is going to be Mm -hmm, hard mm -hmm. for some younger listeners to understand. But if you wanted to buy a video cassette at that time, it was still considered really the property of the studio. I remember Mm -hmm. just to provide some context my family loved and still loves the movie A Christmas Story. And we decided Mm -hmm. after renting it a bunch of times from a local video store, we wanted to buy it. And the store was stumped. They didn't know exactly how they would do that, how they would sell a copy (laughs) to us. So they called up the studio or the distributor or whatever, ordered a copy for us. And this is, keep in mind, this isn't like the early mid eighties. We paid something. My family paid like over $100 for a VHS tape of a Christmas story. You have like Ralphie come to your house and and deliver it or something with with the fragile lamp? Since since we lived in Cleveland and it was filmed in Cleveland, he should have for that amount of money. Easily. Or or we should have at least gotten it with a free leg lamp or something. So, yeah, I know buying a video cassette, Ellie, it's not really part of, you know, our design um, speak here that we're we're, we're into, um, but I f- thought that was such an interesting story and how things have changed now. Um, and speaking of, 
I love the way that you told us about the evolution of what ultimately became the Ghostbusters movie, and that influenced how the poster was designed, right? Yeah, they had no idea, of course, um, <laughs> if they could actually use uh, the title. Um, turns out someone else owned it. Uh, so that was a little bit of a challenge, but they were able to find a workaround. I think that they didn't really know what the final art or what these effects would look like. Later, they kind of named the Green Ghost Slimer because there's the scene where, you know, he slimed me, that kind of thing in the hotel. That was right. later for a cartoon and all this kind of stuff. The ghosts didn't have names or anything like this, so there wasn't any sort of signature character or anything like this. And I think they were still trying to figure it out. So it's sort of like, well, what can we put out there that will be noticeable and kind of cut through it and give people something to remember? So boom, big, simple logo that was just a very, very quick read, and it works. So this episode, you know, Todd, if you remember, this was sort of our supersize episode. We couldn't actually oh, yeah. fit all the research that we'd done into Poor one episode. listeners had to hear a lot from us, didn't they? Yeah, this was, this was, you know, this was kind of our Big Mac episode. We had to put an extra piece of bun in there. Oh, no. okay, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I didn't uh, know it was that kind of show, but okay. <laughs> that's right. You know, everything is always better with some more buns. <laughs> I'm going to write that down. Yeah, yeah, needlepoint it and mail it to me I, for my birthday. I, I will. It'll it'll be for next year's birthday. <laughs> but I but but please go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but um anyway, that middle bun in this case ended up being some good additional lore that was all about Hollywood. Uh yeah, no doubt. And you know, I think we were on a Hollywood kick at that time because our next episode, which we called Adopted Icons, um, I really got way into uh, talking about the origin story for a particular icon used in a film company. Here's a little bit about that. Elliot, what I was telling you before is this is a lighting brand from Norway. Pretty popular lights, been making them since 1937. And it was the inspiration for a short 1986 animated movie that John Lasseter did. And this was really the first thing that came out of the new Pixar. All right, now, what is the new Pixar? Well, first, let me tell you about this movie. Probably have seen it. It's a two minute short film. It revolves around a parent and child desk lamp. And the larger lamp is named, oddly enough, Luxo Senior. And it looks on while this younger Luxo Jr. kind of comes out and annoys the older one, plays exuberantly with this ball and bounces it around, chases it around until the ball accidentally deflates, deflating Luxo's Jr.'s exuberance at the same time. So this film, it was actually a story that was built from a bunch of different modeling tests by John Lasseter, and it was inspired by his Luxo desk lamp so as he was kind of really getting into computer graphic animation, um, he was doing modeling tests, um, shadow tests and things like that. And for his subject, he used his desk lamp, Luxo. It makes a lot so, of sense though, right? Because yeah, it's- It was there, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's there. But also if you think about it, it's a series of geometric shapes. Right, right. And so 
he uh, so what he kept looking at was like okay it's kind of a cool looking thing it's got a lot of interesting movement to it and he was inspired to turn it into a story so not just pictures of lamps and things like that but he was told and this is such a great quote that um you can tell a story even in 10 seconds so a two minute short film uh needs a story and thus became luxo jr but the question is why did he make a two minute short film in the first place this was pixar's first animation after being spun out from industrial light and magic's computer division they called it the graphics group which i know crazy inventive name there boy i'll say you got into it i mean you were going all tmz man you had all the hollywood gossip didn't you Now, you ready to spill some tea? Yeah, I was. I got uh, some tea. I, you, you've been dancing around this. You've been uh, tempting us, and uh, it's time, man. Like, let's okay. let's let it rip. All right. So this graphics group that was spun out from uh, ILM was assembled from leaders of New York Institute of Technology. That would be Ed Catmull and Alvy Smith. Also, John Lasseter, who was recently fired from the Walt Disney Company for guess what? Promoting computer animation. <laughs> and assembled with those guys is a small team from uh, a company called Cadabrascope, which was an early computer animation studio that George Lucas bought in a fire cell from a guy named Nolan Bushnell. Mm. Now, that name may start to conjure up some stuff because Nolan Bushnell was a major entrepreneur who gave us, among other businesses, Chuck E. Cheese and Atari, the yes. makers of Pong. Yes. There right? is an amazing, for those of you out there, um, obviously you like podcasts if you're listening to this one, there's um, How I Built This with Guy Raz, I think, oh, which yeah. is, you know, yeah. and he interviews Nolan Bushnell. So do you, um, do you know why, um, uh, sorry, I'm taking us on a quick tangent here. Do you know why he uh, invented Chuck E. Cheese? Well, yeah, so um, so he could place video um, games inside, and uh, that's why he also uh, invented the small studio, Cadabrascope, as well. Yeah, it was because people, <laughs> he said, people get burgers too fast, but if you order a pizza, you have to wait 20 minutes for them to make it. <laughs> and during that 20 <laughs> minutes, you can pump quarters into video games. Like, that was his rationale, which, yeah. is, which is brilliant. <laughs> yeah, so he was head of Atari and Chuck E. Cheese and then this video company. So he was trying to wrap it all together. But anyway, George Lucas bought that little bit of, of his empire in a fire cell because at the time, the Chuck E. Cheese business was not doing very well. So Nolan Bushnell was trying to sell off bits. So he sold off the Cadabrascope bit, which became part of Industrial Light and Magic, which became part of Pixar. Ah, uh, okay. All right. Tea still spilling, Elliot. I mentioned fire cell. So back when the those members were still part of industrial light and magic george lucas had to have his own fire cell because he was having what cash flow difficulties stemming from his 1983 divorce with a reported settlement of 50 million dollars well and just to take another quick tangent um apparently at the same time spielberg was going through his divorce and they say oh. that's why 
Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is such a dark film because both oh. of the creators were going through divorces at the same time. Interesting. I didn't know that. Well, and you wouldn't think that someone of George Lucas's caliber would be worried about $50 million because he had just made three of the biggest movies of all time uh, in the Star Wars trilogy. But there was also a sudden revenue drop from Star Wars license, uh, the figures and the toys, which he owned out completely. That dropped because the last movie had been made, Return of the Jedi. So made three huge movies in six years, um, but no movie was in sight. No tease of a movie was in sight. So this group was spun out and it had its major investor who helped to spin it out, a guy, uh, last name, Last name Jobs, first name Steve, heard of him? He was recently fresh out of a job at Apple, and he paid $10 million, $5 million for working capital, and then $5 million to George Lucas for the technology rights to these, to like Render Man, which is what it was called then. Yes. It wasn't even known as Pixar, right? Yes, yes. So, um, interestingly enough, still spilling the tea here, in this ironic twist, these two contractor kids worked for remember our guy nolan bushnell the serial entrepreneur these two contractor kids worked for this entrepreneur back in the mid-70s they used atari parts to build their own personal computer and they tried to convince nolan to sell hardware this was atari right and he's like oh hell no like atari is about games and stuff like that we're not selling computers because he was a very wise businessman <laughs> um so he said he said no to these two contractors. So Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs went on to start Apple with that, um, which is crazy because, you know, that we could have been like sitting here on our Atari phones now if that were the case. So, Jim, we got a problem with our podcast. Right. Nobody says it correctly. <laughs> no. Some people say how to fix it. Or how do you fix it? But think of it like this. Whatever the problem, we're in this together. How do we fix it? How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? Yeah. How do we fix it? The solution show from the political to the personal. Practical ideas for creative listeners. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? Ideas that work. That's your radio voice, Richard. Oh, well, I know. <laughs> I love it. I couldn't do it to save my life. I think I've uncovered a new career, Elliot. I, I think I want to do celebrity gossip. I think uh, I, I'm really into it. Like celebrity Hollywood design gossip? Yeah, why not? You know, I mean, what was so interesting about that episode is that it tied so many people together and, and so many different businesses that uh, certainly had an impact uh, on the world. And speaking of impact on the world, I was a little surprised at the adopted icon that uh, that you talked about and its cameo appearances in some really historical events. Have you ever heard of, there was um, some group in the 60s. I can't, yeah. can't remember their name. I think they were big for a while. They're from Great Britain. Great Britain, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, um. They kind of had these matching haircuts. Um, oh, they they yeah. were on oh, Ed oh. Sullivan. Uh, what, Be Beatles, I think is how you pronounce yes. it. Beatles? Yeah, Beatles? yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So what, so is the, what does a blimp have to do with the Beatles? <laughs> 
<laughs> Nothing. I just wanted to bring the Beatles yeah, up. Okay. No, no, well, no, no, no. Now we know so, it. Yeah. So the blimp was in the movie Help. Really? Yeah, the okay. blimp had a cameo and also Beach Blanket Bingo with Frankie uh, and Annette. Now you talking. Yes. Now you talking. Yes. Great movie there. Okay, but not to be outdone by faux events, right? Like trumped right. up media stuff here. Let's go with a couple actual milestone events. So, of course, we all remember the Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989 in San Francisco, right? That was happening during the World Series. Yeah. And um, so when that happened, the blimp actually helped with the earthquake. Well, I mean, it was there. Obviously, it was covering the World Series. So, you know, it helped with messaging and things like that. And then also... A few years later, in 1992, when Hurricane Andrew hit, it helped, mm -hmm. you know, because communications knocked out. This is actually mm -hmm. really, really mm -hmm. fascinating. So they used the lights on the side of the blimp to message hurricane survivors and tell them that help was on the way and what they should do and all that sort of thing. Wow. I had no idea. But huh. now... This is the best thing of all, I think, out of, out of all the stuff we've talked about with pop uh -huh. culture. College Football Hall of Fame. Obviously, right. the blimp covers all these sporting events. In January of 2019, the Goodyear blimp was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame. And, Hell yes, And finally. it's its only non-human member <laughs> of the college football. So it wasn't the first down marker. It wasn't... It wasn't you, a football. Yeah, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't the helmet. Yeah, it wasn't anything right. like that. Yeah, the the blimp, the Goodyear blimp. So... That is amazing. I mean, the blimp, you love it, I love it. I think a lot of our listeners love it. But the blimp, you in a prior podcast used the phrase range of awesome when you were describing right. Cooper Black. The blimp to me is range of awesome, just in terms of pop culture, because chances are if it's going down, there's probably a blimp close by. Hi, while we have your attention, if you want to learn more about us and the podcast, there are a few ways to do it. Visit our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. All of that is spelled out, no numbers kind of a long URL, so do yourself a favor and bookmark it. Once you're there, you can find links to more information about the subjects in this episode, our episode archive, and information about both of us. Wait, we do want people to visit, right? Oh, and look for us on social media. You can find those links on our website as well. And while we're at it, if you have a friend who you feel will dig on our rambling, tell him or her what we're up to while we can't guarantee that they will remain your friend, we can guarantee that they will listen to at least 30 seconds of whatever episode you send them the link to. That's being a little shameless. And speaking of being shameless, it wouldn't be a proper ask if we didn't mention that if you like what you hear, you can also make a donation via our website. We have a Nigerian prince handling all transactions for us. In fact, he told us to mention that we have stickers to mail to anyone who donates $10 or more. Are we done? We're done. We're done. So, Todd, yeah, we're talking about the Goodyear blimp. We're talking about a big, like an oversized icon, right? Something often seen yeah. in events. Yeah. Well, you were able to zero in, I would argue, on an equally noteworthy, equally popular, equally oversized and fun and ubiquitous icon that has been seen at events and... Dropping a subtle hint here, gas stations all over the place. Hmm. Let's hear it. 
So anyway, about these orange balls, really unique for signage, I think you'd agree. It was first designed by a creative director from L.A.'s Young and Rubicon called Ray Peterson. And he was doing advertising for Union Oil in 76, and he was tasked to do a sponsorship uh, signage for the 1962 Seattle World's Fair Skyride, which is, you know, one of those things you get in, it hauls you over the fair and puts you out like a mile somewhere else later. But anyway, at the time, they were just using the flat lollipop sign, just a round circle, said 76. And Ray Peterson, he thought those were boring, and he thought it didn't really evolve much, particularly for something as high profile as a World's Fair. And he also thought we should be able to see it from more than just two sides. So this was one of those aha moments where he woke up in the middle of the night and had this idea of a giant orange ball. And uh, so it was three-dimensional and it rotated and you could see it from all sides. So here's the funny thing though. So it was first launched in uh, 1962, as I said, at the Seattle World's Fair. And the original one cost, hold on to your hat, Elliot, $50,000 in 1962. What would that be today? Do you know? Did you run the numbers? No, I didn't. I don't know today. Um, you know, my guess is, but probably double, right? A hundred thousand? Oh, at least. Yeah. 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 I'll look that up because it would be good to know. But yeah, $50,000 for one. And as I said before, it was eight foot wide. And once it was installed, the senior vice president who was in charge of that project said, we've got to put one of these on every station we own. So I'm assuming they all didn't cost $50,000. I'm assuming they got a pretty good deal because at their peak in 1969, they reported having more than 18,000 of these orange lighted balls spinning around the corners uh, of gas stations in about 37 American states. Okay, so uh, big orange balls. Uh, reminds me, Elliot, did you get your doctor's diagnosis back? I did. Turns out it was all negative. Thank goodness okay, for good. penicillin. Thank goodness. Okay, well, let's get on with uh, this particular podcast. Speaking of origin stories like we were just hearing for 76, Kimmons Wilson's frustration with roadside motels and his idea for standardization gave us a really, really important roadside icon. Todd, you are so right. Hey, let's jump in real quick and listen to a clip about it. Kemmons Wilson, the founder of Holiday Inn, encountered when he was going on a vacation with his family from Memphis, where he lived, to Washington, D.C. in the early 50s. Mm-hmm. He grew very frustrated at the lack of quality in these roadside motels. Dingy hotels, dusty motor courts, these sorts of things might have been satisfactory when people didn't know any better, when we were all coming back from the war and setting out on the road. But he wanted to make sure that as the interstate matured and grew and meant more development and more accessibility across the country, that there would be more sophisticated amenities that would be able to match that with accommodations that were available. Things that we take for granted today, air conditioning, restaurants, in-room telephones, mm-hmm. and perhaps most of all, standardization. Mm-hmm. 
And I would say standardization to answer your question from a minute ago, mm-hmm. like what happened with the Holiday Inn sign. I would say this very thing that made it develop, made it you know spring forth into the world, was the very thing that ultimately uh, hastened its demise as well. Right. Hmm. Mm. So within a year of this frustrating road trip vacation, Wilson had commissioned blueprints from diagrams that he had drawn himself. The designer, a guy named Eddie Bluestein, wrote Holiday Inn across the bottom of the plans after seeing the Bing Crosby film. <laughs> so that existed before the hotel did. And he sort of wrote it on there as a joke, but the name actually stuck. So the first inn, which was built on Summer Avenue in Memphis, Tennessee, was so successful that Wilson followed up with identical ones on three other roads leading into Memphis. So this was the beginning of the interstate system. And Wilson was featured on the cover just to give you an idea of the rapid growth of Holiday Inn. So this is in the early 50s. He had this handful of hotel properties. And by the time summer of 1972 rolled around, this guy was on the cover of Time magazine. Wow. He had franchised over 1,400 inns across the United States and around the world. And just to give you an idea of scale, at that time, he had 300,000 beds. And his nearest competitor in terms of scale, he was three times larger than just the nearest competitor. Wow. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. And going back to the time illustration, certainly he was on the cover. But what else was on the cover with him? The sign. Yes, of course. The great sign. Man, Elliot, Kimmons Wilson sounds like a guy after our own heart. He was pretty passionate uh, about what we know now is sort of modern branding. And I think uh, you really sort of capped it off with uh, how he sort of kept the sign with him uh, even after life. But this guy loved this sign so much. He felt when Holiday Inn was sold off, when he stepped away in the 80s and they started to dismantle these great signs and Mm -hmm. replace them with more standard, cheaper backlit signs. He thought it was a huge, huge mistake because, and rightly so, he thought a lot of the brand equity was getting peeled away. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This guy, when I say he loved this sign, I mean, in a literal sense, he took it to the grave with him, his love of this sign. What do you mean? He has, he has a sign like at his grave? He has a sign on his grave. (laughs) Oh, man. How awesome is that? He has etched in his tombstone a picture of the great sign. The arrow in the great sign is pointing at his name. And in the marquee area of the Uh great sign, it says founder. (laughs) It's better than saying charcoal steak. (laughs) That's amazing. That might be on the backside of the tombstone. I'm not sure. Okay, Todd, so we are talking about branding. We're talking about love of branding. We're talking about something uh, like mortality shouldn't stand in the way of an affection, if you will, for wonderful branding and your love of branding. I'm trying to figure out what sign I would want on my tombstone now, Elliot, so I might... Wouldn't it be Waffle House? 
Oh, well, that would be the obvious choice, wouldn't it? Um, All right. Well, you know, you could always get Waffle House on the front. Yeah. And then on the back, I'm thinking like, you know, Preparation H. <laughs> I like the way you think. I like the way you think. Let's take that one. All right. Now, <laughs> but speaking. I, but, but back to branding. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Enough about our, our giving one another, uh, you know, offhand medical diagnoses. But in all seriousness, okay, Preparation H. Preparation H is a consumer product, comes in a tube, comes in a box, is found on a shelf. What a better segue than that in terms of talking about product parodies, I cannot imagine. So, of course, we both grew up with wacky packages. We loved wacky packages. I mean, wacky packages to us are just as wonderful as Airplane and Mad Magazine and all of these other things that we hold so close to our hearts. And uh, you know what was great was uh, we talk about Art Spiegelman and how he was the brains behind Wacky Packages. Yeah, yeah. He was sort of the nexus on a lot of things for us, wasn't he? He, he sort of tied together a lot of our favorite things. Art Spiegelman is the perfect blend, if you can think of an artist, he is the perfect blend of high and lowbrow culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, this guy has won a Pulitzer Prize. No kidding. Yes, for Mouse, if you recall his graphic novel Mouse, which is about the yeah, Holocaust. Right? But then he also did Wacky Packages. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. So a little bit of everything, um, which is amazing. He sounds like someone we need to know better. <laughs> yeah, we need to we need to go hang out with him. Yeah. So, of course, when he was in school, Todd, guess who influenced him? Um uh, you you are taking too long to answer this question. It's the ahead. same yeah. people who influenced us. The usual gang of idiots. The, oh, okay. Who later became <laughs> his coworkers at Mad Magazine. Oh, no kidding. Okay. Yes. Um yeah, like the Stan Hart, Jack Davis, guys. You got it. You got uh, it. Mort, our, uh, Mort Drucker. Yep. Who is to blame for us starting this podcast, right? Yep. So Art Spiegelman was incredible, but of course he wasn't a one-man band. There were other people doing things as well. So another one of these key artists was a guy named Jay Lynch. And, uh, you know, you did a little bit of research <laughs> that had to do with what they used to figure out the pay scale for these guys. And I got a big kick out of that. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think they were doing it all for the money, Elliot. Let's take a listen to that. I saw this quote from Jay Lynch, who was another sort of constant thread that went through all of this with Art Spiegelman. And he was recalling how they used to work. And he would usually submit about a dozen roughs at a time for a series and they did something like 16 series throughout that their period of uh, eight, nine years. And uh, what a rough was, was an India ink and magic marker drawing. And it was just, he would look at products of the day, go to the supermarket and kind of just make up funny shit about them. They would pay him like a eh, small amount. He said in the sixties, he got about eight bucks a rough. By the 70s, it had gone up to 20 bucks. And then by the 80s, 
it was like 125 and so on. I'm sure by the time he was doing Garbage Pail Kids, he was doing a little bit better than that. But um, what I think is funny, and this is a quote he says, one rough pays about the same as a week's worth of groceries. Always has and always will, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> I think that's how William Gaines would pay the guys at Mad as well. All right, so personally, when you were telling about Garbage Pail Kids, which were a little past uh, my time, so I knew of them, but I didn't know a lot about them. So it was like opening a whole new world, and I really, really loved hearing about the, the battle, the Hatfields and the McCoys, if you will, of Cabbage Patch Kids and Garbage Pail Kids, and then they took that battle global. So the Cabbage Patch Kids, as I mentioned, exploded from a cannon, went beyond our borders, and were sold internationally. So Garbage Pail Kids, not to be outdone, were also popular internationally. Now, I need to give you some of the translated names for what Garbage Pail Kids were called in some other parts of the world. Are you ready? Oh, this will be good, yeah. Yeah, okay. So in Japan, they were known as Mr. Creepy. That was the brand name. <laughs> yeah, this is, these are all the brand Not names. Garbage milk. Yeah, Mr. Creepy. <laughs> In Australia, New Zealand, Spain, and Israel, they were known as the Garbage Gang. The Garbage Gang. The Garbage Gang. The Garbage Gang. In Latin America and Brazil, they were the Trashlings. <laughs> uh, hey, I love their second album, the Trashlings. <laughs> yeah. Well, in Italy, they were called the Snotlings. <laughs> in France and Belgium, they were the Filthies. And in Germany, and this is such a German name, they were the Totally Broken Kids. <laughs> <laughs> the totally broken kids. The children who are the broken ones. <laughs> the children who are the broken ones. And I can see them shaking their heads. Yes, yes. Yeah. But they're not buying the Probably they, they were they were uh all in black and white though in Germany. <laughs> yeah, so Todd, you know, sometimes global can be a good thing, sometimes not. Sometimes you gotta stick with your knitting and uh yeah, I think, unfortunately, Garbage Pail Kids from time to time got uh, out over their skis a little too much. Garbage Pail Kids, at this point, they've taken on a life of their own, right? Right. So, naturally, what do you do? you got to monetize. you got to strike while the iron's hot, Todd. I don't know about you, but that's, that's what good business people do. Well, it sounds like good business advice. It is. It is. So, live-action movie, you got to do that. 1987. Really? Total, total flop. Total oh, flop. Okay. No wonder I didn't hear of that. Yeah, yeah. You were, you were again. You were busy. You were in college. Yeah. Um, one million dollar budget made one and a half million dollars total globally. Wow. So total okay. flop. The same year, they were going to release an animated TV show, like a children's TV show. Uh huh. But there were so many parental complaints that it was shelved and it was never aired <laughs> until years and years later. And then, of course, oh you God. know, the bloom was off the rose and it never went anywhere. Right, right. And then, of course, I don't think any discussion of Garbage Pail Kids or Cabbage Patch Kids would be complete without talking about the horror movie Child's Play with the possessed good guys brand doll, Chucky. 
<laughs> right? So that's, uh, Of course. Yeah, yeah of course. so that's far more, I think, along the lines of what Garbage Pail Kids was all about. And in fact, I think that's the better movie than the Garbage Pail Kids movie. <laughs> well, you might be. God, I would love to get my hands on a on a copy of the Garbage Pill Kids movie and just see how bad it is. Well, good uh, news. I found the trailer. We, all right. We will have a link to the trailer on our episode page. And, Todd, if you still want a copy of the full Garbage Pail Kids movie after you watch the trailer, uh-huh. I will get it for you. <laughs> we will find it. Somewhere. I will also get you some psychiatric help because if you still want it, there are far bigger problems than your lack of taste because this movie looks like it is absolutely horrible. All right, so you know what, Elliot? Uh, you challenged me uh, that if I watched the Garbage Pail Kids trailer and really wanted to see the movie, you would buy it for me. Yes. So I did watch the trailer, and, you know, as you said, I'm certain I'm going to have nightmares from it. Um but I found out. I didn't know Anthony Newley was the star of the movie. So, yeah. So, I mean, he's like legit star. And then, um, uh, was it Mackenzie Aston what played the, the little boy? Um, you know who he is. That's Sean Aston's brother. Right. That's Gomez Adams' son. So, there was some amazing talent in that movie somewhere it went wrong. Uh, you know, I think probably the amazing talent was craft services. I think it was. Whatever it was, it, that movie was a real dog. Yeah, yes. Speaking of dogs, I think uh, we're talking about icons, of course, pop culture icons. I would say if we're talking about dogs, we can't not talk about our favorite masculine tableau in every man cave from coast to coast the dogs playing poker oh yes yes and that episode which we call when pitchmen go pop uh, where it was about ad icons that went on to be even bigger than their products and uh, we uh, learned the name of the artist that did the dogs playing poker as well as a whole series of dogs doing other things that that dudes do, and uh, this guy wins the name game of all time. This guy that painted these dogs is a guy named Cassius Marcellus Coolidge, who wins, he totally wins the name game right there. That's the best name ever. I know, Cassius, and, and he would even sign some of his paintings as just Cash, which, you know, makes him even all the cooler. Um, but he was actually painting dogs that had been humanized. And he was commissioned to do a series of 16 paintings way back 1894 to 1910 for Brown and Bigelow, as I said, to advertise cigars. And if you think about these paintings, so the, the dogs playing poker, those are probably the most famous ones. Mm -hmm. And there's actually 11 of those, but they're doing other things too. They're doing other things that, that, you know, dogs just kicking it, enjoying life do, like playing football or watching baseball or out on a road trip or something like that. But what was cool was the dogs playing poker were by far the most popular. And it's because 
these paintings that Coolidge did, they set up these whole scenes. Like there was so much shit going on in these paintings and they told a story. And if you think about it, they were used for calendars. So they were up for you know a month at a time. So it gave people time to really sort of get into the, the illustration. All right, so Cassius Marcellus Coolidge. What a great name. But <laughs> You know, no. I, I'm going to revisit my earlier comment. I think you, you should get that engraved on your tombstone. Okay, cool. And I can also do that as a uh, needlepoint and send that one to you as well. That'd be hot. You know, it's all about being efficient, isn't it, Elliot? Like, I want to plan all that stuff now while I can. But speaking of being efficient, I loved your story on the uh, pitchman that we know as Ernest P. Worrell and how uh, they made all of these different commercials so quickly. So the way these guys made this work was Cardin and Cherry would approach local Nashville area businesses. So think about car lots, uh, grocery stores, places like this, and they would say, hey, do you want to do a quick low-budget ad with this Ernest character plugging your business? Enough people took them up on it to the point that sometimes in a single day, they shot 25 spots for different businesses. Wow. And these were all (laughs) super low-budget. Yeah. So they were all just shot with a handheld camcorder. You know, there was nothing at all sophisticated about this. You know, it's the equivalent of just... You or I going out with our iPhone today and just shooting one of us hamming it up for, you know, a local grocery chain or whatever. A lot of times these were shot through the vantage point of a kitchen window. So Ernest P. Worrell would always be walking by the open kitchen window with a kitchen table there. And he would come up and he would start talking to Vern. Now, we, the audience, were Vern. So Vern was us. So Ernest was always Mm -hmm. talking to us. He was asking us questions. He was pitching a product. He was telling us what we needed to do. And this was sort of a brilliant masterstroke on the part of the structure of these advertising spots because as a viewer, it immediately put us in the middle of the action, right? Right, right. So these spots took off, and they took off to the point that Coke noticed Ernest P. Worrell, and so he started (laughs) advertising Sprite and I think Tab and some of these other products in the Coke portfolio. Yeah, Todd. I mean, I love how versatile both of these pitchmen were. No, but you're right. It was the versatility combined with their yeoman's work ethic that really made them and kept them icons for all these years. And I think you had some pretty cool insight as you wrapped up that episode. Let's hear that. The question is, are there any Ernest oil paintings available? I am not sure that there are. That might be some... But there may be a market for one, and maybe I should get busy on those. Actually, you should buy buy some velvet, I think, and then you can start your Ernest paintings. That's true. That's true. Uh, Man, so interesting conversation uh, that, that started with me just trying to seek out thinking that no one in their in their right mind would ever care about a painting of dogs playing poker and I could probably find one <laughs> no and um, also about uh, Jim Varney as Ernest P. Worrell who 
uh, started as a, a pitchman everywhere, it yes. sounds like, and became well-loved and well-known, and it was a natural, easy jump to movies because the character was already known and the character was already loved. Yes. So, everyone, thanks for listening for Season 1. Don't forget to catch Part 1 of our Best of Season 1, if you haven't already. And just remember, Season 2 is right around the corner. Follow us on social media, and we'll share all the latest developments. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on fabulously delicious the french food podcast bon app two designers walk into a bar is a proud member of the evergreen podcasts network for more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy visit evergreenpodcasts.com